about uh, joy and equanimity. You like that? (laughs) 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 A joy and equanimity in the context of engaged practice. And I want to start by remembering the context of uh, joy and equanimity in Buddhist practice, which is in the context especially of the divine abodes or the Brahma Vihara. And I want to explore these qualities in that context especially because I think there's something really uh, precious and valuable and subtle about this teaching, uh, particularly for our work with challenging situations in our work, in our personal lives, in our program, in, in whatever we're doing. Because it's this uh, very beautiful and subtle teaching that I find myself, uh, as I explore it more and practice it more and uh, study it more and teach it more, the, uh, the subtleties and the depth become more apparent. It's this way in which we are invited to cultivate these four qualities of loving kindness and compassion and joy and equanimity together. Not just one, but all of them. And the teaching is that they require each other. And that when we don't connect all of them together, or we only focus on one or two, uh, distortions are inevitable. When we only focus on love, or only focus on compassion, or only focus on joy, or only focus on equanimity, then distortions arise which can really both um, impair our work and in some ways leave us unbalanced. Brahma Vihara, the divine abodes. Again, Vihara, a word that we find in our, in our um, chant in the evening. Where we have uh, Vihare in our, in our text. It means dwelling place or abode or house. And Brahma is the uh, king of the gods. So in a sense, it's the the states of loving kindness and uh, compassion and joy and equanimity are the states of gods and goddesses. It was like uh, Masai was saying, the uh, archetypes are real in that sense that it's said that when we are in these states, we are not just uh, being something like those archetypes, we're actually embodying them. Loving kindness, the first, is said to be the natural state of the open heart which wishes well. When that open heart encounters pain or suffering, it becomes compassion. They're not different hearts. They're the heart in relation to different contexts. When the open heart encounters uh, happiness or joy or beauty, it becomes uh, mudita or sympathetic joy. And it's sometimes said that when nothing special is happening, it's equanimity. (laughs) 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 Or it's, by some commentators, it's linked to the neutral quality of things. But it's also understood as the uh, the rudder or the... um, particular balancing factor of these four. I like to think of these states as the beautiful states. And I like to think of the Brahma Viharas as invoking the beautiful. And I'm reminded of how it's really, and I think we can relate to this in our work with music, that in a way, the, uh, when we are with these states, 
as I was mentioning in the other talk I gave, we're moving towards those deep resources which sustain us. When we invoke the beautiful, we're gathering resources that uh, both sustain us on an everyday basis, but also help us especially when things are difficult, when things are really challenging. We call on those resources, and in a given moment, when we're feeling unbalanced or overwhelmed or triggered, as we were exploring earlier in the retreat, we can invoke these qualities. So if I wake up in the middle of the night worrying about the path of engagement, I don't stay with the thoughts as much as I have control. I go to metta or I go to one of those other states. Just a hypothetical example. (laughs) (laughs) And it's actually, it's interesting because in the Western philosophical traditions, if if you have read Plato, it's said that there are three avenues to the divine. There's truth, there's the true, the good, and the beautiful. And so the beautiful itself is an avenue to the sacred. So I want to be brief and just remind us of some of the qualities of metta and compassion and mostly focus on joy and equanimity. In our first retreat, Adrienne gave a talk on loving kindness or metta. In this retreat, she gave a talk on compassion. And just again, very, very, very brief. Um, As in the uh, way of understanding these qualities as in a way, uh, resources that we build that that complement with the work of going into the difficult with insight and mindfulness, the uh, Buddha understood loving kindness as an antidote to fear. And I don't remember if we told the story of the first retreat, but that story of the origin of metta for, uh, in the Buddhist tradition, is traced to the fact that there were a group of monks and nuns who went to a forest to study and practice. And they were in the forest, and the local tree spirits said, welcome stay here. And they meant for a while. And after, after a little bit, it seemed that the tree spirits, I don't know if the communication wasn't clear or what, but it was, <laughs> but it was um, after a while, the tree spirits realized that, uh, you know, like the, the dinner guest was staying for a while. And, and they, they said, um, let's get him out of here. And so they had the capacity to engender both horrific visions and terrible smells. (laughs) The monks and nuns went running back to the Buddha and said, help. (laughs) (laughs) It's a direct translation. (laughs) uh, um, And they, and the Buddha at that point gave them metta. The Buddha gave them metta as an antidote, direct antidote to fear. So I think it's very, again, very helpful to come back to that sense of we have, sometimes we go into the really hard stuff, and sometimes we build resources. Sometimes, and we need to go back and forth when the the moment's appropriate. So metta is of that kind. It's it's also in the, in some of the, I think in some of the texts, it's it's, uh, likened to the beautiful qualities. It's said that it's connected with the brightly shining factor of mind and heart. Brightly shining citta, it's said to be. That is beneath the uh, surface. Not, we are not normally in touch with it. When we do metta practice, we disclose that open, beautiful, wonderful heart. You know, I think as we know from our own experience that or as we've experienced probably many times here at this retreat, things touch us, witnessing our bodhisattva ceremony yesterday. Just uh, so many people come forth, and we were saying in our small group today that there was, uh, it was one beauty after another. <laughs> you know, and there was something that just got touched by the, I think, uh, 
I think I'm not just speaking for myself, because other people mentioned, I imagine it was very widespread experience that we just witnessed that and felt the beauty and the sincerity, and we were in that state of uh, metta and joy. And it's good to remember this very subtle teaching of the far and near enemies that Adrian mentioned. And I want to talk about those as we go through these four qualities because they're very important. They really point to the way particularly that distortions arise in our uh, practice of these four qualities and in particular the way that uh, the four go together that for metta, we can remember that the far enemy is obvious. It's, it's some kind of hatred or aversion. The near enemy, more subtle. It's, it's said to be classically said to be a kind of attached or possessive love. And it can look like metta. It can look like loving kindness. And a lot of our practice is to uh, notice where metta gets distorted. We often talk about metta practice as a kind of purification practice. <coughs> Compassion is literally, I think in the, uh, the literal translation of the word uh, karuna would be quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. Quivering of the heart. And again, it points to the way that there's this natural state of the heart in presence of suffering. Something happens when the heart is open. And as Adrian was saying a few days ago, it's helpful to remember that they're both uh, more receptive and more active dimensions of compassion, not just receptive. The more empathic, dimensions of compassion, and then there's the active response. And I think often of uh, the images of Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva in the lower hall, as many of you know where I've been most, most Wednesday, I've, I've been teaching, and there's this big, beautiful, I believe Tibetan image of Avalokiteshvara, right as uh, he is becoming she, it seems. Avalokiteshvara is a transgender bodhisattva, as you may know, because it's very interesting. It's, I don't know all the dynamics of this, but is the bodhisattva compassion is male in India and becomes female in Tibet some of the time, and then in China all of the time. And so, but, but it's interesting. It's interesting how, but, but in any case, the, the image in the lower hall is one of a thousand armed bodhisattva of compassion. And each of the arms has a hand, and on each hand there's an eye. And it's as it were, there are a thousand eyes, the active, or the receptive, empathic quality of compassion, and a thousand arms for the active dimension. So very helpful to remember that. And again, we, we, we know that Compassion is the response to suffering. And for, for us especially, I think in this time, there's this willingness that we cultivate, which is hard, to go into areas of pain. We saw that several days ago when we went into an area of pain and all sorts of things happened. You know, things opened up, and it was probably startling for some of us to see some of the uh, reactions. You know, and not to try to interpret anything, but just to say that uh, there are a lot of areas of deep pain in the world and in our culture, and somehow our task is to be able to go skillfully into those areas, to know them, to know them, and to be and to have what we were calling that container to be able to do that well. Not so easy as we learned, if we, as if we didn't know, very quickly. We need, we need to, how, how do we do that? Not so easy. I think there's something very crucial about being able to go into the difficult areas that characterizes our times. And I want to read to you something that someone who's been an inspiration to me, Michael Mead, 
wrote uh, shortly after 9-11 about this quality of being able to go into what he called uh, the darkness, the painful. Those who would know the world and recover the dream of life must pass through the darkened center, traveling where no ideology can know the meanings in the human soul. Here, success and speed are an encumbrance. It is better to move carefully and examine whatever appears. The rubble in the human soul is enormous. Clearing takes time, healing longer yet. And the hope that a living person will be found amidst the ruins is also the desire in each of us for a renewal of life, a redemption from ourselves, a recovery from the rubble of our own darkness. On most days, America fears the darkness. The open 24-hour signs and lights always on say that. The rejection of darker people says that. The win-at-any-cost dogma says that. Yet always climbing to the top and rising to the light casts an increasing shadow over the world and loses touch with many things that the earth darkly knows. America fears tragedy, yet finds it more and more. Not just in the skies, but in the corridors of its schools, in the, brighten, in the lengthening walls of its prisons, in the shadows of its institutions. Fear within the borders has spread even as terror gathers without. Nothing expands forever. No one always wins, nor deserves to. The dead don't win, nor are they avenged by adding more rubble to the pile of history. The memory of the dead, the greatness of a people, the destiny of a nation cannot be served by revenge. I seek the other America. If this terrible tragedy is a wake-up call, let us awaken to the dream that America would be. And then he quotes uh, Langston Hughes, some of you know. Let America be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let America remember, he says, the beauty of its own dream and find the enduring freedom of its lost imagination. So again, he's invoking the imagination, which really brings me to, to move to the third of the Brahma Vihara, which is again this, again, you're starting to see that interconnection that he's invoking just as he talks about the ability to go into the difficult, the dark, he invokes the imagination as we were exploring the, the ability to touch the beautiful, to touch joy, that one can't stay very much in a difficult place unless there's, there's access to joy. In the context of the divine abodes, joy is mudita. And I think all of you know that this talk is about the four houses at Spirit Rock. <laughs> uh, and we're, we're past the council house onto mudita. And uh, mudita in the context of the Brahmavihara is especially the practice of joy in the joy of others. It's actually said to be the most difficult of the Brahmavihara to practice, that, that uh, loving kindness and compassion and equanimity are easier to practice. That it's, because classically, it's this practice of finding joy in others' joy. And a few things could come in the way of that. <laughs> such as self-centeredness and self-image and not caring about others and so forth. So it's it's said to be the most difficult of the practices. In in a little while, I'll I'll mention some of how it's classically practiced. I want to talk some about this as a Brahma-Vihara practice and some more, more generally. The literal translation of mudita is to be pleased to have a sense of gladness, to have a sense of gladness. The the Buddha said, mudita is the mind deliverance of gladness. It's this quality of joy which really infuses our hearts. And 
there's actually some uh, controversy in Buddhist circles about whether there can be mudita for oneself or whether it's always mudita uh, for others. And there's, um, there's also a debate whether it's only this joy and the joy of others. Thich Nhat Hanh says this, taking a more broad view. He says, some commentators have said that mudita means sympathetic joy, the happiness we feel when others are happy. But that is too limited, he says. It discriminates between self and other. <laughs> That's a Buddhist touche. You get the sense of these internal debates within the tradition, right? It's kind of interesting. It discriminates between self and other. A deeper definition, deeper, because he's pulling rank or something. <laughs> okay, I'm just, any, any followers of Thich Nhat Hanh, that's any, <laughs> so I hope that was, I'm very respectful. <laughs> okay. He already knows, okay. A deeper definition of mudita is joy that is filled with peace and contentment. We rejoice when we see others happy, but we rejoice in our own being as well. How can we feel joy for another person when we do not feel joy for ourselves? And some people, in fact, many people, in fact, me, or I, uh, would like to, I like to interpret mudita for self as gratitude. And so what we've been doing for uh, a number of times during our retreat is practicing uh, the cultivation of joy in relation to one's own experience through practicing gratitude. And isn't it remarkable how a few moments of gratitude can shift consciousness, you know, as, we, as we've seen many, many times. And so when we do gratitude practice, we are practicing, I believe, the third Brahma Vihara. And it's especially helpful for people who, are, who, who gravitate to identify problems. I include myself as one of those people. And... Uh, in the last two years, I've been doing a lot of gratitude practice and particularly uh, doing it at retreats and then bringing it into daily life. And it is part of my, my, uh, my daily practice that I do try to do a few times a day. And, but during the retreat, I would do gratitude practice just in a very simple way, just to, at first, I sort of accumulated some things I was grateful for. You know, and some of them were more personal, some of them were about life or consciousness or whatever, the path, really whatever occurred to me. But I, I wrote down the most central ones, maybe 10 or 15 of them, onto a piece of paper. And then I would simply go to, the, um, go to what came to me in the moment to really go to that sense of gratitude. To, so I would just sit there and say, what am I grateful for? And, and just let come what would come. And I would do it for five or 10 minutes at the beginning of every sitting. And doing it uh, like that, so it would be, what, 10, maybe 10 times a day, and then bringing it into daily life, I really noticed how it shifted some, uh, this tendency, which again, I, I'm, I know many of us have, which is, and which is connected with some virtues and some great qualities, just to go right for the problems. You know, just to, and, and you know, it's, uh, just when we're in a situation, we see what needs work. We, we go to the negative, we look and we see that. And again, there are um, very important qualities, abilities there to be able to see those things is very helpful, but it's often in a way gets unbalanced. That's really the point. It's not that seeing problems is a, a problem. I won't go into that paradox <laughs> that I was feeling circling around if anyone <laughs> but we, we, but I was finding that it really, it really balanced that, so that I would tend more frequently to be in a situation and see what was beautiful, along with what needed work. It really is a way to balance that tendency to really focus on the problems, because we can get unbalanced by that. A big issue, I think, for many or most of us in path of engagement. And so gratitude practice is very helpful. And it's yet it's not a soporific or something that just 
fills us so much with positive thoughts that we just forget about the problems and are just, you know, it's not really like that. I think, I think we know that from Joanna's work, that there we were invited to work with gratitude as the building of resource that gives us the balance and the strength to go into the difficult. And that's really the purpose of all of this, is to really give us that sense of balance. I think I'd like to read my fa- one of my favorite expressions of gratitude, which is a wonderful book called St. Francis Preaches to the Birds. Some of you know that book? It's one of my favorites. And I don't usually do this at Dharma Talks, but I think I will read the entire book to you. <laughs> it's not usually done. We don't read whole books in the middle of Dharma Talks, but it's short. And I'll show you the pictures, which some of you can see if we had, I don't know if we're ever going to get to PowerPoint presentations at Dharma Talks. (laughs) This is St. Francis. It's 5 a.m., earlier than we wake up. 5 a.m., wake up St. Francis. He opens the window and sings, tra-la-la. He brushes his teeth and says, thank you, teeth. (laughs) He washes his toes and says, thank you, toes. He gets milk. He drinks his coffee and says, thank you, coffee. He goes through the town, through the apple orchard, over the pasture and up the hill. And the birds come flying, 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 (laughs) Flying. No words, really flying. (laughs) Then St. Francis preaches to the birds until the sun sets. Yes, until the sun sets. (laughs) Good night. Well, it's, uh, it's by uh, Peter, let's see, uh, Peter Schumann, the person who, who developed the first uh, originator of the Bread and Puppet Theater, some of you know, in uh, Vermont. Uh, wonderful institution that really connects the heart, spirit, service, and, um, and, and art. More generally, joy in many traditions is taken to be part of the very fabric of reality. Some of you know that in Hindu tradition, the basic formula for the nature of things is sat chit ananda. Sat is being, chit is uh, knowledge, and ananda is bliss. So there's a quality of joy that's very much in the very fabric of things. And yet, for us, we often have uh, the joy shut down as we grow older. You know, they're, they're, if we can reflect on ways that, uh, that the pressures of the society and of our lives actually can be pressures that make joy very hard, whether it's overwork, or rigidity, or uh, too much focus on the negative. There are ways in which, and you probably watch children growing up, have this incredible joy. And many or most children lose it at a certain age. You can almost see it disappearing in certain ways. Is this your experience to notice this? And so there's something about the rediscovery of joy which also means to, as it were, reconnect with that beautiful, that beautiful energy that we know as children, with the, with the maturity of, of adults. And so it's a, very, it's a very deep and powerful work to do that, to really come more into that, into that quality. I think one of the great parts of our work 
and, and a way in which we can see that balance of the four Brahma Vihara is to learn how to bring that quality of joy into the difficulties that we find. To bring, to bring, and it might be to bring art or music. You know, there's this very intense um, poster that I got some time ago, which is called, which is of the uh, of the man named uh, from uh, former Yugoslavia named Vedran Smalovich. He's called the cellist of Sarajevo. It shows this poster shows him playing his cello in the bombed out library of Sarajevo. And I'll leave this up here later if you want to take a look at it. It's very, it's very intense to, to contemplate. And he did that. He brought his cello and played, I believe, weekly in the bombed out, it was actually in the bombed out National Library. And he was within the reach of snipers when he did that. But there was something for him that was about bringing joy and beauty into those situations, which was a very powerful action in its own right. Because it's very, um, one of the qualities of joy, especially as it's balanced with the other dimensions, with compassion and with equanimity, is that the joy can be there even when there are very intense difficulties. There's a very um, powerful book that's one of my favorite books uh, about the life of a woman named Etty Hillesom. And some of you may know that she was a Jewish woman who lived in uh, Amsterdam in uh, well, and her, she wrote a journal called An Interrupted Life, which began in 1941 and ended in 1943 because she died at Auschwitz. And the, in this uh, journal, we see uh, a very, um, in some ways, immature young woman transform incredibly in the face of a lot of uh, suffering and pain and threat. And it's really an incredible document. I really, uh, I remember when I first read it, I couldn't put it down and I was like sitting there basically crying for three days reading this book. And, but she, one of the things that's remarkable, basically she became a bodhisattva. She became a bodhisattva in the conditions of occupied Amsterdam, which at first was not horribly oppressive. Some of you know the history. It was first not horribly oppressive. They could more or less live their lives, and then things clamped down further. And finally, there were deportations of the Jews. And they were um, first deported to what's called a transit camp on the border with Germany, and later to the death camps. So the transit camp wasn't a death camp, but it was still pretty, pretty bad. She was um, offered a chance to escape, and she refused. Her friends found, could find her a way. She chose to stay, and, and um, there were a lot of stories of her playing this very amazing role in that context. And in her journals, there's, the journals go as far as the transit camp, and this is uh, one of her journal entries. And it's about this very remarkable quality of joy, which is still there in the midst of all that. It's, it's almost uh, um, hard to fathom in a way. The misery here is quite terrible, and yet late at night, when the day has slunk away into the depths behind me, I often walk with a spring in my step along the barbed wire, and then time and again it soars straight from my heart. I can't help it. That's just the way it is, like some elementary force, the feeling that life is glorious and magnificent, and that one day we shall be building a whole new world. Right from the midst of that situation, and it's... Um, it's something that I believe we are intending to cultivate, the capacity to be in touch with that joy. And it's something that can, I think, be accessed in various ways. Um, one of the most um, interesting experiences for me came doing, I don't know, it's probably seven or eight years ago. <clears throat> I was doing uh, the two-month retreat here. And uh, probably about six weeks into it, on one particular day, I woke up, I hadn't slept well, 
I was really, really irritable. Nothing was going right. And I was really filled with joy. And I said, hmm, what is that about? You know, and there was something that was, because uh, it goes against the conventional thinking, right? You know, that happiness is connected with things going well. But what it was really pointing to, I think, was that there was a, some deeper joy that is beneath the whether or not things go right in a given context. And it was very remarkable to me because it really, I was, I was kind of shocked at first by it because it stayed. And I was sleepy, I was irritable. Uh, and, and still there was this joy that was there, a contentment. I think it was a contentment about, it was, I think it was connected with awareness. I was, I was, con- I was content because I was in a way, uh, um, basically doing my practice. And that was, that could absorb everything else, if I would interpret it now. And so it's, that's, that's, I think, a direction. And of course, that's I'm not saying it instantly stabilized and whatever situations come up, unpleasant, horrible, difficult, uh, content. No, it's, but, but the taste was really important because it suggests possibilities that then over time get, get more and more stabilized. That's what our practice is about. That's a potential for us as bodhisattvas. It's a potential for us as we work, but it takes that... Uh, cultivation of the uh, practice of joy, whether it's through gratitude or through uh, being with nature, being with beauty, being with art, being with the traditional practice of joy, which is to invoke uh, phrases like, may, uh, in relation to another person, may your happiness increase, may your well-being increase, just like the metta practice uses phrases. Equanimity is the fourth of these Brahma-vihara, and I want to finish the talk by exploring equanimity. It is a quality that as I uh, have, again, studied and practiced it more, I've kind of fallen in love with equanimity, if that makes any sense. It's really a very remarkable quality. And uh, I had so much fun studying and writing about it. And if you've read the equanimity chapter in my book, you know that I thought I discovered 10 new near enemies of equanimity. <laughs> because, but well, I forgot to do the near enemies of joy. Better go back. Um, but, huh? Oh my gosh. Um, okay. Um, Compassion, remember from Adrienne, the far enemy is cruelty, the near enemy is pity. For joy, the uh, far enemy is envy, and the near enemy is uh, a kind of exhilaration or some kind of inflated joy where the kind of the mind clamps onto it and gets inflated in certain ways. Um, you know, with thoughts, maybe it's, you know, it's maybe there's joy and I... Um, like, I lo- I'm really happy about the strawberry, and let me make sure I get a lot more, so and better get more before the other meditators come to the hall. Or that, that would be, you know, that would be a joy that gets, see, you can see how it gets out of balance. So for equanimity, it's this very uh, powerful area, and it, it's also something that for people concerned about the suffering of the world can, can at first appear escapist. For many of us, we might look at the equanimity of Buddhists as suspect. What is this equanimity? The world is burning. How can you sit there being equanimous? What is this equanimity? What does it mean? You know, people are being blown up in Iraq. You know, there's tremendous suffering in a hundred places we could name. There's suffering in our own hearts. How can we cultivate equanimity? What's the point? Shouldn't we be just using all our resources to deal with the suffering? Convincing, huh? You know, that, that, that voice is a strong one. 
And yet the, the teaching is that there's something incomplete if we stay with the first three or if we just devote ourselves to compassionate action and don't have the equanimity, there's something that can get distorted. It's the wisdom dimension that we, that we bring in there. And it's, it really, uh, and it, it gives us certain qualities of mind that become really important in, the, uh, in our work. In turn, equanimity that doesn't have the qualities of loving kindness and compassion and joy itself gets distorted. And so we can go the other way. That's why this beautiful teaching about them all being necessary together is so vital. So equanimity literally means balance. Upeka literally means, means balance. And it's this uh, sense that we develop or this capacity that we develop in the uh, mindfulness practice or in many of our practices to be with what's happening with more and more balance in a way with a certain quality of evenness to be able to be increasingly with anger or fear it really means the quality of equanimity really means to be uh, might, it might mean to be triggered but then come to balance or it might mean to be with the unpleasant or the pleasant and maintain a quality of balance. Balance means to be able to be mindful, to be wise, not to be simply reactive. And so equanimity is a, a quality that's, that's developed quite naturally when we just sit with a pain in our heart or a pain in our knee, pain in our back, and we watch how the mind goes all over the place. And over time, we learn how to be with that pain in a way that can open to it and be present with it without being reactive, without trying to push it away and run away. And again, there are all sorts of questions of how to be skillful, but equanimity is that ability to be with that with some balance. Equanimity isn't the same as calmness. There can be a lot of stuff happening, but it's, equanimity is like the uh, eye in the hurricane. It's the quality of stillness and witness, even if things are moving around a lot. So we can be re really, so equanimity doesn't mean that you move slowly, you, that we uh, have this very calm life. We can be equanimous and be very fast and even speedy because it's the quality of attention, not the content of what's happening. There's also a quality with equanimity of being unshakable, increasingly. As we work and develop balance, it's really a question that, in a way, we come to know the territory of that which knocks us around. That's what our practice does. That's why it's, uh, it takes time. We learn how to be with anger over and over again and be skillful with it. So when it comes, we say, hello, I know you, at least some. Or when fear comes, we say, I know you. I've been with you. And that's why practice is crucial, because we need that training to just see the, same, the difficult stuff over and over and over again and even when we've done that, it sometimes sneaks up and we get knocked around. But if we have that experience, we come back more quickly. That's why the practice is so crucial. We have to be able to know that and be able to come back. Be able to come back because we know what's happening. We see, oh, that's the voice that comes when there's fear. That's the voice that comes when there's anger. That's the voice that comes when I'm uh, panicking. And we notice that. And we say, let me just be with this. And we, it may take 20 times, 100 times, 1,000 times, but that's why practice is necessary for equanimity. We rarely get equanimity by reading books.
that quality of unshakability is expressed by the Buddha in a uh, talk that he gave to his son. How'd you like to have a father who told you, develop equanimity, son? <laughs> that's, what the, that's what the Buddha did. Rahula developed meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contexts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus, and blood on the earth, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contexts will not invade your mind and remain. I'll read, there's another, there are some of my favorite expressions of uh, this unshakable quality come from Japanese haiku. And a lot of them, for whatever reason, have to do with the equanimity of the mind in relation to lice. <laughs> so maybe we can interpret with that. The next retreat, we bring in a truckload of lice. And <laughs> well, when you hear lice, read whatever is challenging for you. Okay. Now, these are haiku, which means they're short, so you have to listen, because in a moment they'll be gone. This is basho. Fleas, lice, the horse pissing near my pillow. That's, a, that's an equanimity haiku. Because he's just describing it, right? He's not saying, I really wish I had placed the horse somewhere else. <laughs> what? Am I making this haiku up? No. <laughs> But thank you for attributing it, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> and two poems by another beloved haiku writer named Isa. And again, the, I think these are equanimity haikus, which is really just seeing the situation as it is, basically without uh, commentary. Seeing, just seeing what's happening. I'm sorry it's so small, but please do practice your jumping fleas of the house. One last one. This is in reference to a, a very beautiful uh, mountain area called Matsushima in Japan. Now you fleas. <laughs> now you fleas, you shall see Matsushima. Off we go. So I could say a lot more about equanimity with, maybe I'll post them. <laughs> um, and there, there are other qualities which are really important to equanimity. There, I, think, I think equanimity carries the wisdom factor. So equanimity is inseparable from insight and understanding. A lot of it is insight into causes and conditions. It's that long view that I was talking about when I talked about Dr. Ari Ratney having a 500-year plan. It's that quality of being able to see the causes and conditions that lead to a situation. And maybe seeing, having this broad understanding of, you know, the centuries and centuries that led to some of the forces that we're trying to work with. I remember when um, in the group, uh, I guess it was... Um, I don't know if it was yesterday. My sense of time, probably like yours, is... is uh, it wasn't now. <laughs> it, it wasn't now, but sometime in the past. When we had small groups, 
and we were <laughs> and we were asked to say what were some of the external social factors that led to some of the difficulties and my first my first impulse I was in that group was three or four thousand years of history right and and uh, equanimity sees that again the other factors are necessary could we we could take three or four thousand years of history and that could make us just um, uh, as if we were sitting on a mountain watching it, not concerned kind of above it all, right? So that's, that's pointing towards the near enemies of equanimity. But the quality of understanding has to do with this uh, very long view, seeing of causes and conditions, being willing to investigate the whole field of events and understand, have insight. For me, it's been really crucial to do that sometimes in interpersonal difficulties where I can, can as, as the French say, to understand is to forgive. When we really, and there, there's a passage from Longfellow that I don't remember now, but I'll paraphrase. He said, if we could really know the secret hearts of our enemies, we would harbor no hostility. Very crucial for people working with those with whom we're in conflict. For I think someone else said that if we really, basically, if we really knew where someone was coming from in the depths of the heart, there would not be that polarization. And so equanimity is this powerful rudder for the other factors, but it too has its near and, and far enemies. The far enemy is obvious, it's a kind of agitation. The near enemy classically is called indifference. The near enemy of equanimity is indifference. It's the lack of the heart being open. It's using understanding and knowledge almost as an excuse to shut down, as a, we could say as a defense mechanism. Very common. One of the reasons that I came up with a 10 or 11 different near enemies of equanimity, many of them not talked, well, almost all but one not talked about by the Buddha, was that I, I think I have some of the, I've in my conditioning had some of those tendencies. That's why I came up with 10, because I know them well, you know, and I'll just, I'll just mention them briefly. You know, some of the ones that, some ways that some uh, qualities that can in a way masquerade as true equanimity, and you can think about them, they're lacking something about the first three qualities, loving kindness or compassion or joy. So I said that I thought that privilege can look like equanimity. I live on the house on the hill. I go about my life. I'm at peace. That can look like equanimity, but it's based on a distance and a self-centeredness, and in some, you know, in many cases, a uh, direct relation to others' suffering. Escapism can look can can in a sense look like equanimity. You know, I feel pretty balanced, I'm content, nothing ruffles me because I'm escaping from my own and others' problems. And again, a kind of defense mechanism. You know, denial and delusion can sometimes look like equanimity or there can be denial and delusion and someone can think I'm equanimous or complacency or resignation can look like equanimity. In a sense, acquiescence to oppression can look like equanimity. And again, I think these are linked with kind of like, almost like defense mechanisms so we don't care, we don't open ourselves up. We can be numb and think we're equanimous. And so the teaching here really is to remember those four going together. Remember how they work with each other. And a lot of our work, I think, is to strengthen each of the four qualities. And here, particularly, we're focusing on joy and equanimity, to strengthen them continually, and then to look out for the distortions. And each of us, because of our work, our preferences, our past history, tend more towards one of those four qualities, the loving kindness, or the compassion, or the, the joy, or the equanimity. You know, perhaps if we're with a lot of suffering, we tend towards compassion as, our, as an important quality. And we can see how if we don't have the others, 
we will tend towards burnout. If we don't have joy and we're with a lot of suffering, we will tend towards burnout. So we can use this model as a, a kind of a, um, a helpful reference point to ask, and you might even ask now, which of these four am I strongest in? Where do I need development? Which of them might be helpful for my particular ways that I get imbalanced? It's a beautiful model, very subtle. You know, I, lo- I love that they go together, that equanimity has to have be infused with joy and compassion and love and kindness, or it's actually not true equanimity. It's not going to be that deep. So I think I'll just close with a wonderful passage from uh, Nayona Ponikatera, who was a German monk who had some... Let me see where this is. Here it is. Where is it? Here it is. talks, he, he was a monk who has one of the most beautiful uh, short writings on the Brahma Vihara, which is, which is called um, the Sublime, I think it's called the Sublime Abodes, and it's accessible on the Access to Insight website, if anyone wants to look, look there. Equanimity, he says, is the crown and culmination of the four sublime states, but this should not be understood to mean that equanimity is the negation of love or compassion or sympathetic joy, or that it leaves them behind as inferior. Far from that, equanimity includes and pervades them fully, just as they fully pervade perfect equanimity. Love imparts to equanimity its selflessness, its boundless nature, and even its fervor. For fervor, too, is part of perfect equanimity strengthening its power of keen penetration and wise restraint. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into a cold indifference and keeps it from indolence or selfish isolation. Until equanimity has reached perfection, compassion urges it to enter again and again the battle of the world. Joy gives to equanimity the mild serenity that softens its stern appearance. It is the divine smile on the face of the Buddha, a smile that persists in spite of his deep knowledge of the world's suffering. Equanimity rooted in insight is the guiding and restraining power for the other three. It points out to them the direction they have to take. Equanimity guards love and compassion from being dissipated in vain quests and from going astray in the labyrinths of uncontrolled emotion. Equanimity does not allow sympathetic joy to rest content with humble results. Equanimity gives to love an even unchanging firmness and loyalty and endows it with the great virtue of patience. Equanimity furnishes compassion with an even unwavering courage and fearlessness, enabling it to face the awesome abyss of misery and despair which confront boundless compassion again and again. To the active side of compassion, equanimity is the calm and firm hand led by wisdom, indispensable to those who want to practice the difficult art of helping others. And here again, equanimity means patience, the patient devotion to the work of compassion. Let's just sit for a minute or two.
thank you for your attention and your joy. And we will have about uh, 25 minutes of walking and then come back for the last late sitting with uh, chanting at the end. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.